During the Christmas season, we often display nativity scenes and enjoy church plays depicting the Advent. But have you ever studied the characters of the first Christmas or considered the special way they were used of God? Stay tuned. He is our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, our coming King of Kings, and will be the Judge of all. This is Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal. I'm Chris O'Brien with the Institute for Creation Research. At Christmas time, it's fun to watch Sunday school kids reenact the Christmas story. The characters being portrayed were specifically chosen by God. But what else do we know about the people with the high honor of being associated with the first Christmas? Stay tuned for the next 15 minutes as we learn more about some of the characters in a Christmas play. Besides the Lord Jesus himself, probably the most popular person in the Christmas story is the Virgin Mary. The Bible tells us that she was chosen of God to be the mother of Christ. Luke 1.28 and 30 says, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Dr. John Whitcomb has had a lifelong career as an Old Testament and theology professor and now operates the Christian Workmen's Schools of Theology in Indiana. He says Mary had a heart for God. First of all, let's recognize that this dear woman, possibly only a teenager, some have suggested that the average marriageable age for a Jewish girl at that time of history was 16 or 17. At any rate, she knew the Lord, she loved the Lord, she was a humble and godly woman. And uh, amazingly, when we look at the opening chapter of the book of Acts, uh, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, she was there. And so his human mother becomes part of the spiritual bride of Jesus Christ. An amazing thing to think about here. Because Mary was highly favored of God and became the mother of our Creator, some view her as having special authority or reverence. However, this is biblically unacceptable. We need to be very careful here not to exalt Mary above the biblical revelation. Uh, many people do exalt her. I'm sure she's greatly grieved as she knows about this and thinks about this as what's going on on the earth today. Actually, she is a true example to all godly women who are not sinlessly perfect. And no one on earth is sinlessly perfect. And she sets an example for such women, in fact, for all of us. It's true that Mary knew she was a sinner and needed a Savior. In Luke 1:46 and 47, Mary says, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary needed a Savior like all of us. And she had a Savior. And she, of course, didn't fully comprehend at that time that her own human son, conceived by the Holy Spirit in her womb, was going to die on the cross and pay for her sins. According to Romans 3.25, all the sins committed beforehand, Jesus paid for in retrospect and in anticipation, all the sins of the world. Now, let's consider Mary's husband, Joseph. Scripture doesn't tell us much about him, but biblical apologist Dr. Thomas Kindle of Reasons for Faith Ministries believes God ordained Joseph to be the earthly stepfather of his son, Jesus. God chose a man who was righteous, who was knowledgeable in the Scripture, who did know and believe that that would have to come to pass, and lo and behold, here his betrothed, Mary, was that chosen vessel, that she would bear the Messiah prophesied, the man who would be both God and man, fulfilling the prophecy 
as this righteous man Joseph had to have believed. Even when it seemed that Mary had betrayed him, Joseph made sure to protect her from harm. It was also a miracle that Mary was not stoned, having been found with child and yet having been betrothed to Joseph. In that culture, betrothal was stronger than what we would call marriage, and she could have indeed been stoned, but God in his providence had chosen a righteous man who would not do that to her. Not only did Joseph protect Mary, but he also stood by her when others may have questioned her integrity. Dr. Whitcomb. I do believe that he was a humble, godly man. Obviously, he had a very hard struggle, didn't he? He had to live down a reputation, you know, that maybe his wife had their oldest son out of wedlock, that she was an immoral woman, in other words. He had to bear that. He was willing to do the will of God. Not one word did he utter, but he was led by dreams and directions to protect the baby Jesus as they fled to Egypt and back. What about the shepherds at the nativity, Dr. Whitcomb? Isn't it amazing that God chose the lowest level of society, lowest paid group were the ones to whom the angels first appeared. And the shepherds are an example to us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think in terms of our social status or educational privileges. God exalts the humble and has special ways to humble those that exalt themselves. And so I say, thank you, Lord, for choosing these humble people to be your instruments to spread the message all over Judea that a Savior had arrived and was born in Bethlehem. Although the next group of people we're focusing on weren't there at the manger, they play an important role in the Christmas story, and they teach us several lessons. I'm talking about the wise men, or magi, as they're often referred to. Dr. David Fouts, professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at Bryan College in Tennessee, tells us about these special people. The wise men that came from the east, as recorded in Matthew 2, were probably of a, a very high class as far as society goes. They were well-educated men. There were probably many more than just three of them. We have the idea of three from the three gifts that are named in the passage of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But in all likelihood, it was quite a large entourage that made the uh, roughly 600-mile trip from the land of Mesopotamia into Palestine at this time. What clues do we have that the wise men didn't travel alone? Dr. Fouts points out that not only were these men dignitaries, but in that time period, it wasn't safe to travel the desert in small numbers. These were, were men of education and men of wealth, men of royalty, and they would normally have an entourage with them, perhaps many servants or, or even slaves. And, of course, uh, traveling at those times was very dangerous because of highwaymen on the road uh, that could stop and overcome a few, whereas an entourage of people would be very difficult to stop, except for maybe by an army stopping them. And, and uh, this is certainly in the time of the Pax Romana, I believe, and so they didn't have to fear from armies as much as they did individual robbers on the road, but uh, a larger group would not have that to fear because there'd be adequate uh, forces to basically defend themselves. So what would have been the probable route taken by the wise men? They probably originated in the land that we know now as Iraq, the land of Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers in the area of the Tigris and Euphrates, and they would have come across what's called the Fertile Crescent, which would be northwest from, uh, say, the mouth of the, both those rivers in the Gulf. Uh, they would come northwest up through the land we now call Syria, and then down from Syria into the land of Palestine. And when they reached their destination, Christ was no longer a newborn in a bed of straw. 
Mary and Joseph did not have baby Jesus in the manger at this point, but rather they were greeted by the, the wise men in a house. And uh, also the fact that Herod, uh, when he sought to kill the Christ child, sent out to kill all the children, male children, two years of age and under. We suggest that Jesus was not necessarily a baby at that point. It could have been a few months, up to two years after the birth of Christ. The Magi's sole purpose of their 600-mile trip to Bethlehem was to worship the Lord. Dr. Fout says we can learn from their experience. They come with a specific, explicit purpose of worshiping this one who had been born king of the Jews. Uh, and notice what happened when the Magi came in. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So this is with reverence and humility. They fell down before him. They uh, prostrated themselves before him and worshipped him. Another aspect of the wise men's worship was that of giving. They worshipped him sacrificially. They they brought uh, gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, and these are gifts certainly fit for royalty and for a king. And it's thought that perhaps that it was uh, these gifts of gold, frankincense, myrrh that actually helped finance the flight into Egypt when Herod went on his tirade trying to kill everyone. There was also a cost to their worship. They were warned by the angel in a dream not to, not to go by uh, Herod's again, so they had to go home a different way. And that's what cost them something. They had a cost to their worship of having to travel through the desert uh, in order to return home. They weren't able to take the easy route back as they had when they'd come, but had to take a more arduous, uh, difficult route back across the desert to get home in order to avoid Herod. Of course, the most important person portrayed in a Christmas pageant is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And although he was just a baby in a manger on that first Christmas, he was still the Creator. Isaiah 9-6 tells us of his greatness through his name. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. ICR founder Dr. Henry Morris reminds us that Jesus was not just a Son of God, but in fact the only begotten Son of God who came to earth with a purpose. There's no other individual like this, and of course that's the one who we ought to see when we, instead of seeing just the infant in the manger there, we ought to see him as he fully and really is. And furthermore, the Bible says plainly that he came to be the Lamb of God. That is, to be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist said, who taketh away the sin of the world. That means not only is he mighty, the mighty God and the everlasting Father, but he was the creator of all things. Colossians one sixteen, for example, says, By him were all things created in heaven and in earth, Visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he's before all things. But yet, this loving creator, in order to save his human creation from an eternity in hell, paid the price of sin for all of us. Death. It says in First Peter that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. So he was the Lamb of God from before the world ever began. He was in God's mind already slain for our sins, for our redemption before the world began. Not only did Jesus Christ become man and die for us, he also rose from the dead. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think, can be shown to be the best proved fact in history, certainly in ancient history, 
beyond a shadow of a reasonable doubt. He died and rose again, and he's the only one who ever did. He's the one who defeated death. And he is the only way to heaven. You know, a lot of people say they're different religions. It doesn't particularly matter which one you believe, as long as you're sincere and so forth. But it does make a difference because all the other religions have founders who've died. Muhammad is dead, and Buddha is dead, and Confucius is dead. But Jesus Christ is alive, alive forevermore. And so he's been given assurance thereby to all men that he's going to judge the quick and the dead at his coming in his kingdom. And so he's our Savior, our Creator, our Redeemer, our coming King of Kings, and will be the judge of all men someday. Well, that's uh, who Jesus is. He's more than just the babe in the manger. Thank you very much. As our program comes to a close, we hope that you've been encouraged. It's our desire at ICR to show that the Bible can be trusted, both historically and scientifically, and to give facts that will build your faith. As Christians, we need to understand the scientific basis for our beliefs. We pray that this program will aid you in your discovery of science and the Bible. You know, most people aren't aware that today there are thousands of scientists that are convinced of the truth of biblical creation and not evolution. Our non-denominational ministry aims to restore and strengthen the Genesis foundations of the Christian faith. If you've enjoyed today's edition of Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, why not visit us on the web to find out more about the work of ICR. The address is www.icr.org. Again, www.icr.org. Science, Scripture, and Salvation, a Creation Radio Journal, is a production of ICR. For the Institute for Creation Research, I'm Chris O'Brien. Thanks for tuning in.